Police One Academy is leading the way in high-quality, affordable training for officers nationwide. Your department can take advantage of more than 1,000 HD videos and 175 full-length courses in a robust learning management system. Training is certified or accepted for training credit in 35 states. Join the industry's most officer-friendly learning platform with more than 60,000 subscribers. To schedule a free demo, go to policeoneacademy.com forward slash policing matters. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Welcome back. This is Jim Dudley. Jim, you know, there seems to be... um, you, you need to look no further than the comment section on any news article on Police One. The, a, a rift, a disconnect between um, the opinions of the rank-and-file um, law enforcement officer and police leadership, um, you know, the, the, the managers, the administrators, the, the chiefs of police, etc., um, particularly over things like um, the use of force. And, um, you know, there are a variety of disputes, you know, everything from, you know, management to, of deployment of officers in various areas, assignments. But the, the one that comes down to the, the biggest um, argument seems to be use of force. And the question I have is, can, you know, organizations that lead, you know, these two kind of disparate groups, like, for example, the FOP and the ICP, can they come together in a kumbaya moment and talk about police use of force within the context of officer safety and use that as a bridge to to kind of bring the two you know, kind of warring factions together? Is that even vaguely possible? I think it is possible. I think the system needs to be changed, however. I think... Um as far as making policy, you need to bring all the stakeholders together and not just the leaders of organizations. Uh, as I said in the past, I'm a card-carrying member of PERF. I have been for several years. I've, um, I, I totally respect Chuck Wexler and appreciate the value of the evidence-based policing that he's brought uh, to professionalize our, our law enforcement agencies. Um, but in, in reading over the documents carefully, the 30 guiding principles of use of force in some of the other uh, publications by PERF, sure, they went to Scotland. They talked to some experts in Scotland. Yes, they convened <clears throat> meetings with dozens and dozens of police chiefs and, and executives from agencies around the country. Uh, and yes, there, there was mention of the Emergency Services Unit of New York, of NYPD, uh, discussing tactics. But I think across the country, you, you need to bring together uh, line officers who experience working in inner cities in Detroit and Los Angeles and New York and, and uh, talk to them about uh, translating some of these theories and goals and ideals to the street, right? So I've heard the criticism when, when I became deputy chief, uh, whenever we issue a new policy or edict, if you will, that line officers uh, would, would criticize that you've been away from the street too long. And uh, it's true to some, to some uh, degree that we're not putting handcuffs on people anymore. We're not taking jails. We're not getting spit in the face or punched in the face or sitting for hours on end at a post or sitting uh, with a handcuffed prisoner awaiting treatment at a mental health facility or at a hospital. So to those uh, degrees, yes, I agree. 
executives are are probably a, a bit far removed from that. But I think I think you start to you need to start listening to the tactical officers associations to listen to to street uh, beat officers, patrol officers who who can give some input on some of the new policies and procedures. You mentioned the 30 guiding principles. And, you know, the thing that my dispute with that document is that there are some really good things in there. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's almost a Trojan horse because there are so many things that make sense and look good and, and, and are actually policy across this country. People are doing these things. Cops are doing these things today. And then inserted into this Trojan horse are some really goofy ideas about, um, you know, how cops should be working the streets. And they just simply are, it, it's one of those things where you, you, the, the, the term, it looks good on paper comes to mind, where it just, you know, the actual application of some of those, I would say maybe there's six or seven, perhaps, and I'm just off the top of my head trying to recall mm-hmm. the number of, uh, of those guiding principles that I said, you, I threw up my hands in the air saying, you got to be kidding, um, that that just really don't, they're not applicable. They're not feasible. They're not implementable. And that's where you get into the question where you just haven't had that conversation with the practitioners. Right. No, and I've said before, until you walk the proverbial mile in the law enforcement officer's shoes, it's difficult, if not impossible, to understand the complexities of street encounters today. And one of the proposed checklists asks officers to consider several options before considering lethal force. I believe cops are doing that today. Right. Uh, I think some some agencies limit the officers by their force options. And so, uh, for example, in San Francisco, where they've been asking for several years for tasers or some sort of electric um, shock device to use as that middle ground between a baton, say, and a uh, firearm, I think it's a great idea. But if you say, no, they can't, that they go from baton, you eliminate the carotid restraint, and you eliminate the taser, then the next logical step in in uh, force is the less lethal shotguns, which aren't always available. They're or, almost never available. Well, I mean, <laughs> in a big city like San Francisco, uh, I'd say... Ninety percent of the cars are outfitted. Yeah, but a, a, a cop getting a, a, doing a traffic stop for a, a roll through a, a stop sign violation—they're not getting out of the car with the shotgun. Right, they're absolutely. not, and it, you're not going to be able to run back to the car, you know, and deploy that option. Right, when, but it, I, it's just not—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, again, it's not thinking through what the, what the actual patrol officer is going to have to deal sure. with. Sure, no, I hear you, but um, that's where it makes sense. As, as some of the um, agency heads have suggested, that we create a time and distance and shielding to give us some more time for backup to arrive, to draw it out, to engage the suspect in a conversation. But more and more, I keep hearing about the tactical retreat and how beneficial it is. But, okay, a tactical retreat, I could think of a dozen uh, situations where if I retreated, you lose a tactical advantage. So I can recall looking into a, a doorway and seeing this bizarre scene of a suspect holding a shotgun on a woman who is sitting there nude with a motorcycle helmet on her head. And think about it. You look in and that, that's the scene you see. And your mind is trying to make sense of what you're seeing. And to withdraw, tactically retreat from that doorway, you go, you give up the surprise advantage 
And now next time you look in, that shot, shotgun could be pointed uh, in your direction. So in, in some situations, it doesn't make sense at all to do a tactical retreat. Uh, some situations you have um, no safeguards. Uh, you know, you look at a mailbox, it provides some protection against firearms. You you get behind a patrol vehicle, some protections, but absolute, no, unless you're, you know, I, I learned from the academy, unless you're behind the engine block, you are not protected from most rounds coming through that vehicle. Yeah. And I think that what you've just pointed out is, is kind of the crux of the matter is that all of these things are like snowflakes. None of them is the same. And so you can't have these blanket um, policies that are allegedly applied to all scenarios mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because every situation is completely different. It's rapidly unfolding. You don't know what you're going to have from one second to the next on any given, say, for example, your shotgun scenario. You know, you, you may take a, a do a quick peek, do a quick look, and come back one second later, and the whole situation is completely different. Sure, sure. You didn't see the second suspect in the room, perhaps, or the, you know the woman is not seated where she was seated before. So it's you, you have to respond like we've seen many, many times, it you know in a split second fashion and make those decisions. And I think that one of the things that's in you know that the, one of the great strengths of cops in the United States and actually across the world, but particularly the United States, is they're they're constantly thinking when then what am I going to do next what am right. I going to do next what right. am I going to do next and it's not a sit back firefighter mentality it's not a you know we're going to just go out and take care of the call take a report and go home mm-hmm. um, the, the best cops out there are actually doing these scenarios in their heads of what am I going to do next sure no and I, and I think if you if you're asking officers to put themselves at risks at risk in order to take someone into custody who may be armed or who may even have already uh, used force or violence on another. And, and you're asking the officers to, to put themselves in harm's way. I think, I think that's not reasonable. I repeat that the officer has exhausted all their options as outlined in the state penal code and by Supreme Court standards, then they should be able to use whatever force they deem necessary. And I think in the Supreme Court decision, I believe it was Judge Rehnquist who said, look, we are going to go by what the officer deems reasonable at the scene, the objective reasonableness of the officer, what they believe. And we can't throw a bunch of what ifs at the wall two weeks later or months later in, in a court and, and deem their actions unreasonable if um, not everything was available to the officer at the time. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, yeah, that's Graham v. Connor. And it's, you know, we can't have hindsight 2020 vision on what an officer perceives. Right. Now, the, you know, we have body cameras and surveillance cameras and cell phone cameras and cameras that have cameras and all kinds of the, the cameras are everywhere. Right. But the cameras in the eyes and the perception of the eyes in a rapidly unfolding high stress situation are different things. Sure. The camera captures a great deal more uh, than the human eye in in that particular instance um so you know when you start applying and you start looking at how technology has evolved since graham v connor Mm -hmm. we can't allow the technology to overtake the 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 guiding principle that the officer or officers see and hear and feel something at the time Mm -hmm. they express what they've seen and heard and felt as the basis on which they made their decision to use force or not use force sure and that that we can't take the human element out of it right and and i think as long as the supreme court uh 
rulings stand and, and they'll probably get stronger with the next Supreme Court. Um, One would think that that you can you certainly will have chiefs and executives across the country um, making their own protocols, policies that may uh, go to another level different than the Supreme Court ruling. But uh, I think when you when you start writing in absolutes into policies, for example, the um, absolute no shooting at a vehicle, I think shooting at a vehicle is a bad idea in general. I do believe that if you shoot uh, a uh, driver who's reckless with a vehicle, you shoot it. You shoot the driver. You may stop it, but chances are you may have now a an unmanned vehicle. Unmanned vehicle, <laughs> yeah. which which may cause even more harm. And but then if you look at the Nice France situation, and recently, I mean, this week, two days ago, Ohio State, you've got an individual running people down on the sidewalk and in the street with a vehicle, um, how long do you let that go before you do use um, firearms to stop the driver? And so if you make it an absolute that at no time, no exceptions, you do not shoot in a moving vehicle, I think you put the, the officers in a tough situation where on the front end, if they take no action, yeah, they might not be held to any kind of censure for not shooting, but regrettably it may impact the officer and their own psyche and their maybe PTSD for putting them in a situation where they allow it to where they're just spectators to the slaughter. Right. So, so the front end they're they're questioning themselves. And then on the back end, say they do shoot and, and disable the vehicle and it stops or something else happens on the back end, they suffer in court in, tort claims, civilian court or federal uh, court of civil rights violations. Yeah. I, you know, we could go on and on and on and on about, you know, all of the different scenarios. I think I would really like to see, and this is kind of a plea, a call for action um, among the the, the police unions, the FOP, um, the the leadership of the people uh, who actually patrol um, to, to really reach out and try and get in touch with some of these folks at PERF, you know, we're trying to implement mm-hmm. um, these, these quote, guiding principles uh, as we go forward into 2017 and just really try and give them an understanding, a better understanding of how these things will play out if you, as you'd said, um, you start writing policies of absolutes because I just think that that's a, that's a, it's a really bad direction to go. 